Remember when Jesus sent them out two by two, he told them they had to travel lightly. And in the Acts of the Apostles that tell us the stories of the trials and tribulations and triumphs of the early Christian community 30 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead, the apostles did as Jesus instructed. They traveled lightly. They took no one and nothing with them except each other, where they were sent out two by two. And because they had nothing with them, they planted the seeds of faith, but then they had to erect a structure around those newly planted churches to make sure the faith would flourish long after they had gone on to the next town. And when we say building the church, we don't mean a building of brick and mortar. It was the people. There were no churches. There wouldn't be churches for 300 years because it was a crime to be a Christian. They'd burn it down and everybody inside it. It was the people who were like-minded. They were lining up to be baptized in many cases, also martyred. Because nowhere, no matter what, wherever the gospel was being preached, it was already an occupied Roman province because Rome occupied the whole known world of that time. And thus it was to leave that structure in place while the apostles went further, spreading the gospel to broader audiences, they decided we need to choose deacons in order to make sure that the sacraments will still be celebrated and the poor will still be fed in our absence. And that is why in the reading today, the beginning of chapter 6 of the book of Acts, they invoke the Holy Spirit and choose seven men, one of whom will become the first martyr of the Christian faith, Stephen, whom Luke describes as being filled with the Holy Spirit. But at a time when it was a crime to be a Christian, and every single place they preached was an occupied Roman province that criminalized Christianity, why were so many people lining up to join this church and have a target painted on their back? It's because in all of those occupied provinces, those people had their freedom taken away. They were not free to chart their own course or their own destiny. They were controlled by a governing power that oppressed them. And yet Jesus and his apostles preached a new kingdom, a world without end, where they could be set free and live in true freedom, humility, holiness, and happiness forever. And it was that hope of heaven that gave so many people the strength to be baptized, even though it meant likewise that they could be martyred. And so many of our early Christians were, 25 of our first 31 popes, martyrs for the faith. And yet there were more people martyred for Christianity in the last hundred years than in the previous 19 centuries combined. More hostile than ever this world is to the gospel we profess. Those apostles, they were willing to die. Most of them would. 10 of the original 12 would be martyrs for the faith. But without the Holy Spirit, this church would never have gotten off the ground. We've talked about that time and again, how those apostles weren't so sure when they saw the rings in Christ that he actually was risen, and that it wasn't a ghost or some sort of hallucination. But as we see in the gospel today, they were confused long before they saw the risen Christ. They were confused even before Jesus went out to the cross about what was going to happen, why it was going to happen, and how it could be God's plan. A month ago today was Good Friday, and our gospel for this fifth Sunday of Easter is taking us to Holy Thursday. In the upper room in Mount Zion, where Jesus had come up on Palm Sunday on a long journey to Jerusalem, preparing not only for the Passover, but for his passion and for him, the two were closely linked together. The Passover is usually a meal of remembrance. It was stipulated by Jewish scripture law that said each year every Jewish person had to observe the Passover to remember the wondrous events God worked in Egypt so that Moses could lead his people across the Red Sea. And the Passover remembers the last night they spent in captivity when the worst of all the plagues would be visited by the God of Israel upon Pharaoh Ramses II and the people of Egypt. 
he was going to strike down the firstborn of all their families, even their flocks. The only people who would be spared had to slaughter a lamb and paint the blood on its doorpost. And in a night that was darker than any, any person had ever experienced, the Green Reaper sifted uh, the families of Egypt. For those faithful Hebrews who had the lamb's blood over their door, their children were spared. Lives were spared by the blood of the lamb. That's why Jesus' passion must occur during the Passover. But that meal was all about remembrance. And yet in John's account of the Last Supper, Jesus isn't talking about the past. He spends the whole time talking about the future. He's giving one prophecy after another, and John records them all. Jesus predicts at that table that Judas will soon leave and betray him, and he does right at the end of the previous chapter. Jesus predicted at that table that Peter would swear an oath against him and all the apostles would deny him within hours. That one will be true. He predicted the next day that he was going to die, that he would rise again, that he would appear to them again, that he would ascend into heaven. He predicts the descent to the Holy Spirit and even his return in glory. He also predicted a bloody persecution. He said, you'll be hated by all because of my name. That was a lot for them to digest, a lot for them to take in, so many messages about what's going to happen that night, the next day, and at the end of time. But the stumbling block for them was when Jesus said he was going to be betrayed by one of them, denied by Peter, abandoned by the rest of them, put on trial, and murdered the next day. That didn't sound like the good news of the gospel. They left everything to follow Jesus, and they did so because they thought that one day he'll put down that shepherd's staff and take up the sword and start settling scores with their enemies, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, hopefully the evils of the Roman Empire. But instead of killing anyone, Jesus informed them that he was the one that was going to be killed. And it's in light of all of that that we jump in at the beginning of the 14th chapter, perhaps the most popular funeral reading, where Jesus says in the face of death, do not let your hearts be troubled. He needs them to understand this was and is the Father's plan. They think it's some sort of conspiratorial plot concocted by Jesus' enemies, but it's a plan concocted by God in order to set sinners free. The Sanhedrin, Judas, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they're just playing a part in this passion play, but God wrote the script, and it was necessary in order that we might be set free. Jesus wants them to understand that may appear to be his darkest hour, but it is about to be the hour of his great triumph. For when all seemed lost that next day and darkness covered the earth, when his holy hands were nailed to that cross, a cursed way to die, that cross was going to become a trophy, a key that Jesus was going to use to unlock the gates of heaven, not only for them, but for all who believe, and to gain access to the Father's house, that heavenly dwelling place he so beautifully describes to them today. And he says, I'm going there, and I'm coming back again, and I will take you all to myself, so that where I am, you also may be where I am going. You know the way. Well, that makes sense to us. We're an Easter people. We believe in the resurrection. We know how the story ends. But to apostles like Thomas, who think that uh, they made a mistake by leaving everything to follow Jesus, no, this doesn't sound like victory. This sounds like failure. And that is why he speaks for the others when he cries out, Jesus, what are you talking about? Where are you going? Why is this happening? How can we know the way? And if it's Calvary, why would we want to follow you there? Jesus has an answer for doubting Thomas. Jesus is the answer for doubting Thomas. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
worst echo in the minds and hearts of Christians for 20 centuries, as true today as they were when Jesus first spoke them. He made it very clear to them, you want to get out of here? You want to go to heaven? You got to go through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he is the way that will lead us home. Jesus is the way that will lead us to happiness. Jesus is the way that will lead us out of darkness into light and from death to new life. But we must go the way he leads us. And that way, truth and life does indeed include Calvary. Jesus had to bear his cross. He had to suffer that we might be set free. And he said, whoever would be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me every day, wherever he leads us. And we have our own crosses to bear. They are many, they are heavy, and the way forward is unclear and full of obstacles. But when all seem lost, Jesus was preparing for his greatest victory. He will do the same with us and in us and for us and through us. If only we can trust in him, not only in the light, but especially when it's dark.